Hello? All right. Good morning, guys. How are we doing? Good. Well, half of us are awake. It is so good to have you guys here this morning. We're going to be jumping into the book of Acts. Uh, for those of you who I have not had the pleasure of meeting yet, uh, my name is Seth. I have uh, the opportunity to serve as the youth director here at Fremont E-Free. And man, I am so excited for what we're going to be going through this morning. We serve a great God. Amen? Amen. Our God right now reigns in heaven. Okay? He reigns over the entire earth. Right now, he is looking down. He sees every single one of us. If you have believed in him, you have been filled with his spirit. He is guiding you according to his will that you may know him and treasure him. Every one of us at one point in our lives were sinners, cut off from God, rebellious to him, not wanting to have anything to do with him. But praise God for his faithfulness because in his faithfulness, he came and he moved in our lives to draw us to an understanding of the truth. He proclaimed the gospel to us, regenerated our hearts that we would believe and trust in him. Guys, this is a privilege that we are undeserving of. The holy God of the universe who created everything by speaking it into existence has moved in your life that you may know him. Man, someday, I know we're talking about this, we're like, wow, this is so great, this is so huge. Someday we will stand before him after we have died and when he's come to judge the world and we're going to see him in his glory and we're going to be like, you are infinitely more wondrous and awesome than I ever imagined. But before we get there, I want us to have a glimpse of our God as we see him in this text in Acts 21 this morning. So we're going to be going through Acts chapter 21. We have a decent section today. It's spanning from verse 37 to chapter 22, verse 29. And I want to give us a little bit of context before we dive into that. So context for the book of Acts is that it's written by the Holy Spirit as he was working through uh, Luke, the beloved physician. Now, Luke was a companion of Paul on a lot of his missionary journeys. In fact, as you're reading through Acts, you'll see sections that say we and us. Those are indicating sections where Luke was probably with Paul as he was going on these journeys. Um, but ultimately, it's inspired by God. Now, the content we see in the book of Acts is that it basically serves as a part two to the gospel of Luke. Uh, what happened to the early church? What happened to all of Jesus' disciples after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended back into heaven? How did we get uh, to Fremont Evangelical Free Church in the 21st century, right? Um, this begins to show kind of the roots of the church, and it follows the spread of the gospel throughout the world uh, during that time. And so as we're going through the book of Acts, it kind of follows a three-part outline. Chapters 1 through 12 follow the Holy Spirit's work um, through the apostles. Specifically, it really follows a lot of Peter's work in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria as God is going out and taking the gospel out to those who are the closest to where Jesus' life and ministry occurred. By the time you get to chapters 13 through 21, it, it then begins to follow the Holy Spirit's work through our brother Paul as he begins to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, right? And we've been all over the place. We've been to Galatia. We've been to Acacia. We've been to Corinth. We've been to Thessalonica. We've been all over watching how God is drawing the Gentiles, um, many of them, unto salvation in him. And today we're going to be kind of getting to one of the final sections of the book of Acts where we begin to see Paul's defense for the work to which God had called him. Um, we're going to see a number of different times in these final chapters where Paul gives his defense before Jews and Gentiles of the ministry to which God had called him to. 
So that's where we're going to be today in chapter 22. The timeline that we're looking at is right around 57 AD, so some 23, 24 years after Christ's ascension. So let me pray, and then we'll dive into this morning's passage. Um, God, we want, Lord, I want you to teach us this morning. Uh, Lord, there's no words of human wisdom that are going to be able to adequately communicate what is going on here. God, we are completely reliant upon your spirit to teach us, to lead us. God, I need you to give me the words to say, and Lord, I, we need you to open up our hearts to, to perceive the spiritual truths that are in this passage. God, would you reveal yourself to us through your word? Would the truths that you want to communicate to us through this passage, um, God, just open up our eyes to the glories of who you are and the awesome things that you've done, especially as we look at our, our uh, brother Paul's life and what you did in his life. Lord, would it cause us to walk away loving you more, more in awe of you, and God, transformed by the renewing of our minds to proclaim the gospel to those around us. So Lord, please bless this time and lead us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. I want to invite you guys to stand at this time for the reading of Scripture. The reason we stand is because this is actually God's Word. It is powerful. It is worthy of our honor. Uh, You guys can open up your Bibles there. I'll also have the words on screen. Acts chapter 21, beginning at verse 37, says this. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed towards Damascus to take those also who were there and to bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. And as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, 
to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I'd returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came to him and said to him, tell me you are a Roman citizen, or tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. This is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. All right, the main point I want, us to see through, I want us to see as we go through the text this morning is this. Your testimony bears witness to the truth of the gospel. Your testimony bears witness to the truth of the gospel. In the passage, we're going to see this unfolding in three separate points. First, we're going to see it in the context for Paul's testimony. Secondly, we're going to see it in the power of Paul's testimony. And finally, we're going to see it through the effects of Paul's testimony. So to the first point, the context for Paul's testimony. As you guys will remember from last week, Paul is in the temple and he's undergoing purification to demonstrate his faithfulness to the law. Right? They had these men who were uh, completing their Nazarite vow and they were ready to go cut their hair right, and offer sacrifices to God. And Paul was going to be paying their expenses to show the Jews and especially the Christians right, who'd, who'd come out of Judaism in that culture to say, hey, look, I like... I, I keep the law like, like I'm a Jew, and I, and, I, and I love the Lord. And so as he's at the temple going through uh, these sacrifices, he ends up having some Jews from Asia Minor, most likely Ephesus, who recognize him there, right? And as you remember, they end up stirring the crowd, accusing Paul of having brought Gentiles into the inner court of the temple, which interestingly enough, I learned that apparently on the outside of the temple, there was a sign that basically said in a number of different languages that if you are not a Jew, you are taking your life into your own hands if you walk past this point. And like, we're going we're gonna to be guiltless if you end up dying because of it, right? Because Gentiles were not supposed to come into the inner court. That was reserved for the Jews. Paul had not brought any Gentiles in there, yet nonetheless they thought that he did because they saw Trophimus with him earlier. And so they come and they grab Paul and they start beating him and they start to drag him out of the temple. And I want you guys to try and immerse yourself in this context. I want you to try and see what's happening here. If you guys have ever been to 
uh, where a riot has broken out, right? Or where there's been this massive fight. You guys know, like, this is kind of a terrifying place to be. This is a riot that broke out in India, right? But you have people who are angry, who are breaking stuff. At this particular instance, this riot, this outrage, this uproar that's happening is all focused on one guy, Paul, right? And, and dealing with him. I want you guys to imagine you're coming to the temple to worship God, to honor God, and all of a sudden you're surrounded by people who are screaming at you, who are punching you, who are pulling on your garments. You end up getting pulled down, grabbed by the back of the shirt, and end up being drugged out of the temple. With all these people surrounding you, they lock the doors to the temple, and before you know it, you are surrounded by people who are punching you, kicking you, spitting on you, and you're thinking at this point, okay, like I'm probably going to die, right? Like, I've probably met my end at this point. And so this is the context that we see Paul is in. And if it were not, if God had not sent the Roman cohort to come and to intervene, he probably would have died at this point. If God had not sovereignly intervened, this probably would have been the end of Paul. And so the Roman cohort comes, they end up actually having to pick him up and carry him back to the barracks because of the violence of the people who are persecuting him. And then he ends up making this request to the tribune once they bring, up, bring him up to the steps about to go into the barracks. Now, a tribune, for those of you who are wondering, was a commander of a thousand men, okay, and the Roman military. And he makes this request of him. Verse 37, may I say something to you? And he, he speaks this to him apparently in Greek. And here the, tri- the tribune thinks he knows who he is. In verse 38, he says, are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of assassins out into the wilderness, okay? This seems like a rather bizarre accusation. Any of you guys accused of leading an army of assassins this past week? No one? Okay. I think Paul would have also been a little caught off guard by this statement. I had to look up a commentary to try and get some context for it. So here's kind of the context for that. Some three years previously, an Egyptian adventurer appeared in Jerusalem claiming to be a prophet, and he led a large band of followers out to the Mount of Olives. There he told them to wait until at his word of command, the walls of the city would fall flat and they would march in and overthrow the Roman garrison and take possession of the place. But Felix, the procurator of Judea, sent a body of troops against them and they killed several and took others prisoner. And the Egyptian himself discreetly disappeared. So this was a guy who tried to basically overthrow the Roman military that was there However, a lot of the Jews knew this wasn't going to work, and so they told the Romans about it, and the Roman, uh, the Roman military came out and whooped the rear ends, all right? And the Egyptian himself ended up running away. So as the tribune is seeing this riot breaking out and everyone persecuting this guy, he thinks this must be the Egyptian who's come back, and he's trying to stir up an uprising to come and fight us again. And so as soon as he tells Paul this, Paul's like, whoa, 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 all right? This, this is not me, okay? Verse 39, I'm a Jew, from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city, and I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. Paul ends up giving him his credentials, like, I'm not from Egypt, I'm actually from a really well-known city, and during their time, the city that you had bolstered your resume, okay? You were known, like, you would, it, it would give you more reputation to speak if you were from a more famous city, and he also says that he's a Jew, so therefore, he's qualified to be able to talk to Jews about this. 
And so he desires to speak to the people. And so receiving the permission, he hushes them. And it says he speaks to them in the Hebrew language. In verse 40, the Greek for this is like Hebraic dialectus. It's, it's the Hebrew dialect, which most commentators believe is actually Aramaic. It's very close to Hebrew, but that was the dialect that the Hebrew people spoke. And so that's the context for Paul's testimony. And then we, begin into the, we start to get into the meat of the power of Paul's testimony itself. And we see this starting at chapter 22, verse 1. When Paul, who is speaking to this audience, addresses them as brothers and fathers. I want you guys to think about this. This is literally a group that has tried to kill him. I want you guys to imagine there's a whole group of people who end up rushing into the church, okay? They grab you, they pull you out of your seat, and they end up dragging you on out to the parking lot, right? They're beating you, they're kicking you, and all of a sudden the police show up and they end up breaking it off, and you have an opportunity to talk to these people, and what do you say to them first off? Brothers, fathers. This is kind of weird, right? Why in the world is he talking to these people this way? They were just trying to kill him. But what he recognizes, he's a Jew. He understands their religious zeal. He gets why they're trying to kill him. And he so strongly identifies with the Jewish people that he's addressing them as though they're family. And what does he want to give to them? We read this in verse 1. Hear the defense that I now make before you. He's wanting to give them a defense for his life and his ministry, right? He's wanting to share with them his testimony and be able to proclaim the gospel to them. Who does this? Who, after almost being murdered by the people around them, is like, you know what? I want to stand up and I want to share my testimony with these people. I want to talk to them about Jesus. If, I were, if, if that was me and I just got drug out into the parking lot and almost killed, I'd be looking at the police. I'd be like, you need to arrest that guy. You need to arrest that guy. That guy ripped off half my beard, so you should cut his hand off, right? Like, I'm thinking, somebody take care of these people. But what does Paul want? He wants to be able to share the gospel with them. He wants to be able to share his testimony with them so that they can also believe, okay? That is the Holy Spirit working through Paul to love his enemies, even as Christ has loved us. And this is huge. Number one, this is huge for Paul because he's been desiring to do this for a long time to be able to come back to the Jews and tell them why he went down the path he went down, why he has the ministry to the Gentiles that he has, right? Because this is where he grew up. A lot of these people would know him, would know his folks. The Sanhedrin would have been familiar with Paul. And a lot of them are probably wondering, what in the world happened to this guy? And so he's very much desiring to share his testimony with them. But it's also big for us because Paul's testimony bears witness to the truth of the gospel. I mean, we're talking about the guy who wrote basically half of the New Testament, right? And so what we're going to see with his testimony is that this isn't a testimony um, that, that he received from man. This isn't a gospel that he received from man, but it was something that was given to him by God himself, right? Something that God himself called Paul to. And so where does this testimony start? Verse 3. I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. 
So Paul begins by, first off, recognizing his city of birth, right? Like, I have a, like I have a reputation, I have citizenship to, to be recognized. But I, guys, I'm from this city. I'm from Jerusalem. I grew up with you guys. Like, I was brought up in this city. I've been educated at the feet of Gamaliel, who was one of the prominent rabbis during that time. In fact, I read a commentary that said that there were very other few Jewish rabbis that were more recognized in the first century than Gamaliel was. Okay, so he's saying, like, this is the guy who taught me everything I know about the law. And he says that I was zealous for God, verse 3, as all of you are this day. Clearly you guys want to kill me because you're zealous for the law. I had that same zeal, right? Verses 4 through 5, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness, right? He's saying, I was doing exactly what you guys were doing. I hated Christianity. I was persecuting this, right? He's pointing back to his BC days, his days before Christ, and he's saying, I, I was right where you were at. I get it. I know why you're persecuting me. I was in that same place, but something happened, and that something was Jesus. And so I want to ask you guys the question, where were you when Jesus found you? How did he change your life? For me, I remember Christ finding me when I was right around the age of six, all right? I was a little dude, pretty into my own little world. I loved dinosaurs, I loved Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Batman, and I also loved Hot Wheels. And there was a particular day, I was hanging out with a buddy of mine named Kermit, and uh, we were playing with our Hot Wheels up in his upstairs room, and he had this like brand new Ferrari F-150 shiny red Hot Wheel. And I thought this was the most glorious little car I had ever seen in my life, right? And I began to covet this car as I was watching him play with it. And there came an opportunity where Kermit ended up needing to go back downstairs to grab something, and you guys know what I did? Took the Hot Wheel and I stuck it in my back pocket. I am only at the age of six, and, I'm, and I am already guilty of Grand Theft Auto, okay? <laughs> Literally, I took this thing home, I pulled it out, I started playing with it, and my dad, who apparently keeps a very keen inventory of my toys, comes on upstairs, and he is like, Seth, where did you get this Hot Wheel? And I'm like, well, you got it for me, Dad. And he's like, no, no, I haven't bought you that toy. And then I'm scrambling, thinking like, oh, man. Uh, and I was like, I think Lindsay stole it when we were over at Kermit's house. That's my little sister. And my dad was like, Seth, Lindsay wasn't even with us at Kermit's house today. <laughs> so you talk about being caught red-handed right in the middle of my sin. Like, that was me. So I got my tush whooped, and I had to take his car, and then one of my favorite toy cars, and I had to take it back to him and apologize to him in front of his dad about my sin that I had stolen from Kermit, right? That was B.C. Seth <laughs> going, about, going about his thievery days. And uh, it was right around that time, shortly thereafter, that my dad is a preacher, and I ended up hearing the gospel message at this little dinky church plant in Salina, Kansas. I remember hearing how Jesus came. He lived the perfect life that you and I couldn't live, and he died on the cross in the place of everyone who believes in him. And so we ended up going home, and I ended up asking my mom about it, and she ended up just unpacking it for me, and then asked me at the end if I wanted to put my faith in Jesus Christ and be forgiven of all my sins. I said I did, and so at about the age of six, I ended up kneeling over a toilet and gave my life to the Lord. And, uh, and he has radically changed the trajectory of my life. 
It's not that all of a sudden, like, I'm without sin, right? And I stand before you today as a holy man, right? No, I'm righteous because of Christ, but I still struggle with sin. But Christ has been with me. He has been walking with me. He has so taken care of me, watching over me every step of the way. When I was a senior in high school, not knowing where I was going to go to college, he allowed me to get accepted to a college that only accepts 10% of their applicants. I mean, and at the, and at the 12th hour, I mean, my God has been watching over me and directing my steps every step of the way, caring for me. But it was when I was six years old, that's, that's when he really got a hold of my heart and opened my eyes up to the truth. And so in the same way, Jesus found Paul and he radically transformed the trajectory of his life. We see this in verses six through eight. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, okay, so this is the middle of the day, Right, A great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And immediately he recognizes this is God speaking to him. And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Right? So how does someone go from being, from being hell-bent on persecuting Christians to becoming someone who believes in Jesus Christ? And the answer is that Paul met the risen Lord. Can you say the same? God ends up working through Ananias to restore Paul's sight and to declare to him the new purpose that he's given him. We see this in verses 14 through 16. He ends up saying to Paul, The God of our fathers has appointed you, one, to know his will, Two, to see the righteous one. And three, to hear a voice from his mouth. To what end? For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Ladies and gentlemen, he who is in Christ is a new creation. Here on the road to Damascus, God ended up meeting Paul, blinding him from the sheer glory of revealing himself to him and transformed his heart to be someone who came to know the Lord and to trust in him and to follow him. Praise God for his salvific work. We see in 1 Peter, um, the apostle Peter describing this work. He says that you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had, received mer- once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Paul was once on a mission to persecute believers and put them to death. Now he's been transformed to someone who proclaims the excellencies of him who called him out of darkness into marvelous light, and his name is Jesus. Praise God for the work that he did in our brother's life. God took Paul, a sinner who was warring against him, and he made him into a son, proclaiming the kingdom he once persecuted. The man who came to Damascus hating Jesus walked away from Damascus as a devoted follower. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, how does that happen? How do you account for such radical transformation? The answer is only Jesus. I want you guys to hear Paul's testimony because his testimony bears witness to the truth of the gospel. Because the truth is, people don't just change like that. People who are already, quote-unquote, deeply religious don't just instantly switch to a belief system that they hate and that their entire surrounding culture outrageously hates. 
Something deeply transformational happened to Paul, and that something was Jesus. The risen Lord met him, he rebuked him, and he drew him to repentance and salvation. Can you say the same? Has your life been so utterly transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ that your heart now cries, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Has your soul tasted the goodness of the Lord and the greatness of his salvation? Have you met your God who has mercy even on his enemies to turn them from death to life? Have you experienced the forgiveness and love of Christ that washes you clean of all your sins? Because you cannot come face to face with that God and remain unchanged. If that's your testimony, then let the people of God say amen. If you belong to the Lord, brothers and sisters, you are a living, breathing testimony to the reality of Jesus. Because people can argue against a philosophy And they can argue against a mindset. But one thing they can't argue against is the power of a transformed life. And if you are a rebellious sinner who was once walking down a path of selfishness, just living for yourself, not caring about who you hurt along the way, to have God meet you and transform your heart and draw you to redemption to where where now you desire to live for him and honor him, that speaks to the reality of who Jesus is. Because that does not happen in your flesh. Only Christ can bring about that transformation. And that's the sort of transformation he's worked in my life and all of your lives who have believed in Christ and the same transformation he worked in our brothers, Paul. And your testimony bears witness to the truth of the gospel. That same Jesus who found you, found Paul on the road to Damascus and caused him to return to Jerusalem to to proclaim this good news, that God saved him, that God opened up his eyes to see who the Messiah was, that it's his son, Jesus Christ, and there our faithful God continued to direct Paul's steps. We see this in verses 17 through 18. When I'd returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and I saw him, saw Jesus, saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. Right? Bro, you don't want to stick around here. They're not going to hear what it is that you have to say. Now, this was difficult uh, for Paul to receive because if there was anyone who would get his testimony, right? He thinks it'd be the people who he grew up with, his own community, who's seen this transformation in his life. If anyone's going to understand that I'm not the same, it would be them. And yet that's not who God was calling him to. But what he says is, he's like, verse 19, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving watching over the garments of those who killed him. He was zealous for the law and he was persecuting the church. And yet that's not who God was calling him to witness to. He wasn't calling him to witness to these Jews. Verse 21, go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. He's receiving his commission from the Lord to go and proclaim the gospel to those who we we would consider the furthest from Christ. And so this now moves into the final point where we see the effects of Paul's testimony The Apostle Paul is sharing his testimony with his hometown of believers. If there is any testimony that should be convicting and drawing people to salvation, this is it. How do they respond? Verse 22. 
Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and they said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. The Jews already believed that Paul had defiled the temple by bringing Gentiles into it. And now he's telling them that God has directed him from God's covenant people, the Jews, because they wouldn't listen to him, to now take it to the out, those outside of those covenant promises, the unclean Gentiles. And that's the testimony he's supposedly received from God. This repulsed them. This disgusted them. Their quote, he should not be allowed to live, was the judgment that they heard after he had given them his defense. Brothers and sisters, if you consistently share your testimony, there are going to be people who don't care for it, and there are going to be others who truly hate you because of it. Will you share it anyways? I remember that when I was growing up, I ended up going to a conference. I actually think it was at Challenge. They had a guy come and speak, and his name was Mark Cahill. This guy wrote a book called The One Thing You Can't Do in Heaven. And for those of you who are wondering, what is the one thing you can't do in heaven? It's share the gospel with non-believers. But he ended up sharing a story about how there was a day where he went out and he was doing some street evangelism, uh, sharing the gospel with some people, and he came up to a man who seemed pretty hard-hearted, pretty resistant to it, but he wanted him to hear his testimony, and he ended up giving him his phone number to say, hey, if you have any questions about Jesus or about the gospel, like, please call me. I want to talk with you more about this. And the guy took his phone number, and he did end up calling him. He ended up calling him back a few days later, and he left a voicemail with him. And he said this voicemail was one of the most hate-filled voicemails he's ever heard in his life. He, he talked about how much he despised him as a man, as a person, how much he despised Jesus, how much, you know, what he would do to him if he ever came around again, what he would do to his wife, what he would do to his kids. I mean, he said it was the most hate-filled message I had ever heard in my life. And the truth is, sometimes if you share the gospel, you share your testimony with people, you're going to run into a lot of hate. Will you share it anyways? Will you, will you give the same kind of love that you've received from Christ? Right? That though we were dead in our transgressions and sins, Christ came to us and he opened up our eyes to the gospel and drew our hearts to redemption. Will we show that same kind of love to the people who hate us? And that's what our brother Paul is doing here. Even though they reject him, they start to, to take off their cloaks. They begin to fling dust in the air. And the tribune at this point decides that he's going to try and calm things down. So he has Paul brought into the barracks, and he's going to try and figure out uh, what, what's happening here. So would he go and ask him questions? No. He figures the best way to get information out of a guy is to start flogging him. So they end up strapping him to a post, probably, to have him flogged um, and, and begin to get ready to go at him. But the only thing is, is that this is unlawful for Roman citizens. And Paul brings this up in verse 25. He says, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Right? A Roman citizen had personal rights at that time that protected him um, from being whipped without first being tried. And I have a quote from Cicero, who's a Roman statesman and lawyer, who basically elaborates on these Roman rights a little bit. This is what he says. To bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him an abomination, and to slay him is almost an act of murder. Now, Paul at this point had already been bound, right? And they were stretching him out, about to flog him. Now, if he had followed through with this, the Roman government 
would have every right to come down and to greatly punish the tribune for, for violating the rights of Paul as a Roman citizen. The Romans were one of the first societies to give a lot of individual rights to their citizens, and, and the tribune and the centurions and those involved would, would have been severely reprimanded for doing this. And this Roman citizenship, which God in his awesome and undisputed sovereignty provided for Paul at birth, would inevitably direct his path to Rome for him to proclaim the gospel there. And so God is still here directing the steps of his servant. Even as those who reject his testimony here turn away from it, there will be those in Rome who who respond. And so the main point that I want us to see with all of this is that your testimony bears witness to the truth of the gospel. Within the passage, we've seen this with with the context for Paul's testimony, the power of Paul's testimony, and the effects of Paul's testimony. So now we have to ask ourselves the question, how does this apply to our lives? Not does this apply to our lives, but how does this apply to our lives? And first, for the non-believer, how this applies to you is you need to repent and believe the gospel. Okay? If you have not put your faith in Christ, you are a sinner. You have done what is wicked and evil, whether that's uh, lying and stealing like me, right? Whether that's cursing someone, whether that's lusting after someone, whether that's hating someone in your heart, we have all sinned against a holy God. And the punishment for that is an eternity separated from Christ in a place called hell. It is a place of torment and it is the just punishment for what you and I have done. But praise God, though he is just and does not allow wickedness to go unpunished, he is also a merciful and gracious God who came and lived the perfect life that you and I could not live. And he died a horrific death on the cross, suffering under the wrath of Almighty God, so that everyone who looks to him and trusts in him, he would bear their punishment and they would receive his righteous life. They call this the great exchange. And it's through faith in him that we would be forgiven and reconciled to God. If you are a non-believer today, I want to call you to repent. Turn from your life of sin. Turn to Christ and trust in him. However, if you are a believer, I want to encourage you guys to share your testimony with others. When was the last time that you shared your testimony? People can deny ideas and philosophies, but they can't deny the power of a transformed life. Your testimony bears witness to the truth of Jesus Christ because God is still at work in the world transforming lives today. So I want you to think through right now in your own mind, who are the friends and the family who you haven't shared your testimony with? This may be someone that God has been putting on your heart for a long time. And then when push comes to shove, you're walking up to it and you're like, I'm not ready for that. Jesus, please, not yet, not yet. I want to encourage you, submit to the Spirit be obedient. Share your testimony with those around you, okay? They need to hear it. Some of you may think, man, my testimony isn't that great. I've grown up in the church. Like, I wasn't living in the drug cartel and sleeping with prostitutes. Like, I don't think my testimony is that powerful. Look, we're all sinners who have been alienated from Christ. And if you truly put your faith in Christ, you know he has transformed your life. You know he's opened your eyes to the truth and how he's continuing to move in your life to teach you and to direct you. You have a powerful testimony. It's the story of how God ransomed you from destruction and called you into fellowship with his son. And your testimony is worth sharing. 
So ask God to give you the boldness to carry the good news of what God has done in your life to a world that so desperately needs that same salvation. The God who was working 2,000 years ago and met our brother Paul on the road to Damascus is working today. He has been working in your life and he has given you a story to share. Share it with those around you because they need to hear it. Let me close this out in a word of prayer. God, you are so good. Lord, we're gathered together here as your people, and yet someday, Lord, we're going to be standing before you, Lord, for the marriage supper of the Lamb, for those of us who have believed in you, and Lord God, we're going to see you for all that you are. The majestic God who has called everything into existence, Lord, who has made every one of us, and right now, Lord, we exist for your glory. God, would you give us boldness to proclaim your word, to share our testimony, Lord, of how you've moved in our lives and how you've transformed us. Lord God, that those who hear would also be able to believe and be a part, Lord, of that wedding feast in the day when you come home for your people. God, you will reign forever. And so, Lord, help us to be a people dressed in readiness, sharing the good news as we look forward to that time. Oh God, lead us this week. Teach us this week, and may what, we, what has happened here this morning remain with us, Lord, even as you guide us into deeper fellowship with you. It's in your awesome name that we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to partake in a time of communion, so if you have your chalice, go ahead and pull that out at this time. Uh, I want to remind us of the purpose of communion at this point. purpose of communion is really threefold. Number one, it's to remember Christ's death on the cross, that Jesus did not pay a cheap sum for your salvation. He literally paid for it with his own life, the most agonizing death you can imagine. Christ paid to ransom us back to God. Praise God for his mercy. Number two, we do this to identify ourselves with him, that that's my king. He's the one I follow. He's the one I serve, and I fully identify myself with him. And number three, it's to look ahead to his return when Christ comes back to establish his throne, his reign over the world forever and to punish the wicked. So first off, let's start with the bread. If you want to open up the little, little part on the top that has the bread, and I'm going to be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Give me just a minute to flip there. We're going to be reading verses 23 through 24. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread together. All right. Now I want you guys to open up the part that has the juice. In the same way, also he took the cup, and after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Let's remember the Lord together. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. All right. One final word of prayer, and then we'll be dismissed. Lord God, how can we say thank you enough for what you've done? 
Lord God, that you bore our sins. God, that you suffered tremendously on the cross to reconcile us to you. That now, Lord, we can partake of communion. We can partake in this fellowship with you as we eagerly await your return. God, would the reality of the gospel transform how we see you? God, would you fill our hearts with your love through your spirit? God, to be emboldened to share that gospel truth with those around us, would we not care about what they think about us, Lord, but would we love them with the same kind of love that you have loved us, that even if they hate us, even if they reject us, even if they want nothing to do with us, Lord, we want them to have an opportunity to see you and to repent and to turn to you. God, fill us with that love. Fill us with that boldness that only comes through your spirit. And God, work through your church to save your people, God, until that glorious day you come to take us home to be with you forever. It's in your awesome name we pray. Amen. Brothers and sisters, go in God's peace.